Welcome to Bible Greek VPod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 7. In this lesson, you will learn the instrumental case, and then the text will be 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Last time, I introduced the lesson with three things that I wanted you to look at. One was observation. The second was interpretation. The third was application. That's the method of our translation. So last week I talked a little bit about observation. This week I would like to talk a little bit about interpretation. What does the text mean? Remember observation. What does the text say? Now interpretation. What does the text mean? First off with interpretation, you should always heed what your elementary school teacher taught you. That is basic interpretation. If anybody tells you how to read anything differently or any other method, any other fancy technique uh, than what your elementary school teacher told you, then uh, beware. Certainly, we, as we uh, progress through school, we, we understand uh, more and more in the finer points of, uh, of interpretation, how to read and how to understand what you read. But in Bible schools, just about every seminary will make you take a class called hermeneutics. So in, semina- in seminary, hermeneutics is, in, is interpretation. It's a fancy word for interpretation. But basically, when I took hermeneutics, I thought, well, I know how to read. I took that in elementary school. Everybody knows how to read. Why do I need to find out how to read the Bible? Well, I found out why it was so important to take this class. Because there are so many denominations out there who misapply the scriptures. And so the hermeneutics class in seminary is essentially there to point out those errors in, in, the, in the church's doctrines that have come by. It just was very, very apparent. The very first class, it was, very, it was apparent that the class was there to get you to think about what it is you believe. Why it is you believe. Where do you get that from Scripture? The uh, old Protestant sola scriptura. It has to come from Scripture. And so, for the basic point of interpretation, we asked five general questions. Again, this is exactly what your elementary school teacher told you. You asked the the who, what, why, when, and where that we talked about last time with observation. But who is the author addressing? That is the first fundamental question. Who is, who, who it, who is it that the author is addressing the text to? Is it uh, in the Old Testament? Is it speaking, for instance, to Israel? Or is it uh, in the New Testament speaking more generally towards the church? For example, an an observation that came out in class one day was the concept of a tithe. Does the church give a tithe? It's a very important concept. Well, the tithe was given to Israel. Do we keep the law? Does the church keep the law? It's a very important question. It turns out that some churches teach that we should, the church should, give a tithe, a tenth part. That's what a tithe means, a tenth part. But the New Testament teaches we are to give freely from the heart. Who is the author addressing? Is it 
Israel or the church. A lot of people just buzz right through the Bible and everything applies to them. The second thing to ask is to ask those questions. Who, what, why, where, and how. Third things to ask is context. You have the immediate context, and that is defined by just a couple of verses that you're looking at. Then you have the local context, which may be the paragraph surrounding these two verses. Uh, It may be the whole chapter. And then you have the larger context, uh, the whole book, or even larger than that, maybe the whole New Testament or uh, some section of a book. So context is very important. Most problems will be made clear if you just keep reading. Now, let me point out the danger. There is a danger in studying microvision. Microvision, a lot of translators, just a couple of verses, and they will have a microversion, a very small version of what, a vision of what they're looking at. And the result could be <laughs> devastating because they haven't looked at the big picture. But then there's another danger, and that's the, the macro vision, the bigger picture, that overview study. Sometimes you need to look at the details. So pay attention to context. The fourth thing is that interpretation is a grammatical historical approach. What is going on historically? What did the word mean in the day that it was written to that people? The historical approach understands the historical context. And then fifth, most importantly, understanding that all books of the Bible are inspired by God and is God-breathed, what we would call God-breathed, inspired by God, and that means it is trustworthy. A lot of work has been done in the past to, um, to canonize the Bible, and you, you, everybody has to, every individual has to come to the point where they can trust that, where they can come to know and trust that the Bible is truly inspired of God. And so I hope that I'm not going to demonstrate that, so I hope you have done that study, and I hope you have uh, truly trusted God's Word for what it says. Now let's move on to our lesson for the day. The grammar lesson is in the instrumental case. The instrumental is the case of means or instrument. It uses the same form as the dative and the locative, but it's translated much like this. We owe with or by a son, and then use with the article, towio, with or by the son. The word instrumental comes to English from the Latin instrumentum, meaning a tool or an implement. Notice this, though. One of the most theological, one of the, one of the great theological uses of the instrumental is found in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. By grace is that instrumental. It is the instrumental of cause, indicating the cause of our salvation. It is by grace you have been saved. See, that's the cause. While through or by faith is the means of our salvation. The preposition uh, dia means 
by means of faith, or by the means of faith. The source of our faith is given as a gift from God. To put it another way, our faith is seen as a gift and something that we, on ourselves, on our own, cannot produce. It is produced in our hearts by the agent that is God himself. The ablative of source or origin with the preposition ek informs us that the source is not out of us, nor out of works, uk ek ergon, but from God alone. Dr. Wallace says, It would be better to translate it as by grace or on the basis of grace instead of because of grace, since this last phrase might be construed as indicating only God's motive, but not the basis of our salvation. Now let's look at the uses of the instrumental. First, there is the instrumental of means. The instrumental of means indicates the means by which something is performed. It expresses the personal agent. This is the closest to the root meaning of the instrumental case. The translation uses by, by means of, or with. An example is Matthew 8.16. When evening came, they brought him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits by means of a word, lego, and healed all who were ill. So they were cast out by means of the word, or a word. Then next there is the instrumental of cause. The instrumental of cause indicates the cause of the action. The translation uses something like because of, or on the basis of, An example is Hebrews 2.15. And might deliver those who, because of fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to slavery. Phobo, because of fear. Next there is the instrumental of manner. The instrumental of manner indicates the method by means of which an act is performed or an end is achieved. This use is frequently found in adjectives of the instrumental form. An example is 1 Corinthians 11.5. But every woman who is praying, prophesying with the head uncovered, dishonors her head. Notice that, with the head uncovered. Next there is the instrumental of measure. The instrumental of measure is used when two points of time or space are separated by means of an intervening distance. It may also identify degrees of difference in space or time. An example is Hebrews 1.4. Having become by so much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So, by so much has this idea of uh, measure. Next, the instrumental of association. The instrument of association points to the association of a second party. An example is Romans 15.27. It pleased them indeed... And they are their debtors, 
For if the Gentiles have been partakers with you by means of your spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. So that instrumental of association points out by means of your spiritual things. Next is the instrumental of agency. The instrumental of agency indicates the personal agent by whom the action is accomplished. The translation uses by or through. This is often expressed by use of the instrumental case without the addition of a preposition, and the verb is always in the passive or middle voice. For example, Romans 8.14. For as many as are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So those uh, instrumental of agency by the Spirit of God, the agent there is the Spirit of God. Now let's move on to the Greek lesson for the day, the Greek text for the day. I hope you've gone to the website and downloaded the detailed analysis. And let's take a look at this. 1 John 2, 7 and 8. The command is recalled. So at the height of John's reasoning concerning proper Christian behavior, he now comes to the heart of his argument. The new commandment of love that forms the basis of the Christian faith. This section will introduce the reader to the main subject of the rest of the letter to the church in Ephesus, a church already familiar with the command, but here he emphasizes truth and the outworking of the commandment. In the first phrase of verse 7, he writes this, Brothers, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. He introduces that with the word brothers, Adelphi, the plural. It's in the vocative, brothers or brethren, and it brings the force to the front. The importance of this section is brought right to the fronts by this vocative. The vocative is the case of direct address, and it serves to ascribe to the object of address special definiteness, to heighten the importance of the force, the negative particle, ook, along with the object, and its modifier is placed at the head. Brothers, not a new commandment, I am writing you, is how it literally says. Again, the word for the commandment is intala. It's an accusative, feminine singular, and it speaks of an order, a command, a charge, or a commandment. Notice John tells them. He is not giving them a new command. He is not adding anything to the message that has not already been received. Nor has John been given a special message, a new command for them. The Gnostics claim special knowledge. But there is nothing new to be added concerning the subject of how one is to live a spirit-filled life. What John is writing concerns an old command, a pleos, that adjective, an old ancient one, one no longer new, a worn by use. Notice the mathematical precision of the Greek as this relative pronoun matches the subject exactly, the hos the 
relative pronoun accusative feminine singular who or which or what. The imperfect tense of echo, uh, the imperfect active indicative second plural to have or hold, provides the fact that they were given the commands from the start and it is incomplete, though reflecting continuous action in past time. I take this as an inceptive imperfect, which means continuous action, but emphasizes the initiation of a process, the beginning of an action rather than its progress. The point at which the command was given is said to be op arches, from the beginning. The, the Greek word arche is a genitive feminine singular, beginning or origin, points to the new command that Christ himself gave when he came in the flesh. That's our reference point here. Notice what it says in John thirteen thirty four, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Let's look at the next phrase. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. See, he's defined it. The new commandment is defined here. This phrase serves to clarify the previous phrase. The commandment is defined in a two-phrase manner, providing the reader the understanding that, first, the commandment came by word of mouth, and second, the commandment came from Christ. The first phrase says the commandment is palaas, an adjective, an old one, and came by logos, uh, with the definite article, the word. It came by the word of Jesus himself, which akuo, that second person plural aorist active indicative, you heard from the beginning. The aorist you have heard is ingressive. That is, it is viewed from the standpoint of its initiation. And it works hand in hand with the imperfect you have. They had the commandment and continue to have it. The message does not change as it is the same message that was given by Jesus himself. A better translation might be to break this phrase into two complete sentences. The commandment is the old one. And in the next sentence, the word is what you have heard from the start. See, that would clarify it. The commandment is the old one. And the word is what you have heard from the start. The time reference refers to the beginning when they first heard it. Paul is said to have started the church in Ephesus. And his and this message that John preaches is no different than what Paul preached. Notice what Paul says in Romans 13.9. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. John seeks to speak to them about the outworking of love, love in word and deed, before he finally defines what the commandment is in, in 1 John three twenty three in the very next chapter. Here's where he defines it. This is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, 
and love one another just as he commanded us. So there's two parts to this commandment. Believe, uh, be, be saved, if you will. Believe in the, in the name of his, of, of his Son, Jesus Christ. And then love one another. Notice also that the overriding commandment in view is that one believes in Jesus Christ. And only after this commandment can the other follow. How can a command of God be performed outside the grace principle of faith? It cannot. Mankind is responsible, but only God can bring about the change of heart. Is this a paradox? Yes. It is something that does not seem right to natural man. Man wants to participate, to uh, bring something to the table. But that is the revelation from God, that God himself gets the glory. That is the command from God. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We looked at the instrumental case, that great theological use of the instrumental For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. A clear, clear indication of that wonderful gift that God performs. The next phrase, verse uh, verse 8. A new commandment Jesus gave. Again, I am writing a new command to you. What? What's going on? John very deliberately repeats what seems like a contradiction as he writes Pelan. Pelan is that adverb again, and which means looking at it once more. That is, John means to look at this on this entole, this this orderer's command, his commandment, um, in a new way, a kainos, that adjective there. It's it's a new one. He's gonna look at it once more. What John is reflecting upon is, in this section, is the reality of truth and light. He is building up the argument, making the reality of God's truth penetrate to the heart so that the word will move to deed. He has already said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. The idea here is to move from word to deed. The next phrase, which is true in him and in you. The relative pronoun has is neuter, matching the gender of the abstract accumulative message given. John is given a message packed with application that had its root in the original commandment Jesus gave concerning the love principle. This message is alethetes, that that adjective, accusative, neuter, singular. It's true in or with Christ because in him is truth. Jesus is our type, our walking example of truth, the application side of truth that is called the love principle. He said he loved the Father in John 14.31 and is in the Father in John 10.38 and so forth. That is the first principle, namely, love your God with all your heart. That's nothing new. It was in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 11.13. The second love principle is love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22.39 or Mark 12.31 and 33. 
This too he satisfied as he spread the message of love of the love of God to a dark world. At John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him may have eternal life. It's a dark world, but he came into the world professing, giving out light. This truth is given as a living, walking example to mankind as it presents what is called the type or example what that believers are to live by. So John includes, is true in him and in you. Make no mistake, the most important truth has to do with the message. That is, Jesus came in the flesh, died on the cross as the perfect Lamb of God, taking upon himself the sin of the world. He was buried and resurrected. It is clearly explained that he truly died. He really died and was raised up for our justification. And he is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, demonstrating his power over life and death. What biblical truth also has to do with action? What the message defines, the walk reflects. But biblical truth has to do with action. What the message defines, the walk reflects. What one believes as a new creature in Christ, a change in heart produces a walk consistent with that belief. That is the core of John's message in this letter. He emphasizes man's sin and his or her need for a Savior that God's supernatural work in the believer and the man's new ability to listen and to accept the things of God. That's what it's about. A transformed person now is included as one who hears. A person of the ear. What the Jews called themselves in the Old Testament, they call themselves the people of the ear. They call that the great Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. 4 through 9. Listen to this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as fontlets between your eyes. You shall write them in the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Very important section of Scripture. So now we, as the Gentiles, brought into this, also have an ear to hear. The next phrase, because the darkness itself is passing by and the true light is now brought forth in the light. This conjunction, hote, identifies the reason for light's progress as it is translated because the supte, that nominative feminine singular of darkness, is passing by. The word for passing is perago. It's a present middle indicative, third person singular, to pass by, to go by. And it's from that compound, para, from or beside, and ago, to lead, 
or to take with one. So it's translated itself is passing by. Itself is passing by. That middles comes out. This is the same construction as verse 217 where John points out that the world is also passing by. So you have two things passing by, the world and darkness. In contrast to the fact that the darkness is passing by, John proclaims that the true phos, the true light, is now, a day, now already, in fact already being exposed for what it is. The Greek Phano, the present active indicative, third person singular, is, uh, to bring forth into the light, to appear, to shine, is what Dr. Robinson calls a linear present active, is already shining, is how he translate that, translates that. This is what God is doing now in what is called a mystery, something not revealed in the Old Testament, but now revealed. The mystery of the church, like you'll find in Ephesians 5.23. The true light is the message, and the action is pictured as being spread and superintended by the work of the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? The Holy Spirit is active in this church age. He's the one who superintends the word. The picture drawn from the verb is that of the message is being spread, exposing the hidden things that are covered by the darkness. The light is present now, and the darkness is slowly passing. The doctrinal implication is what is called the imminent return of the Lord. No one knows the time or the hour of Christ's return, but the reality is that darkness is here and will continue until Christ comes. It is indeed passing, but will not pass away until he returns, when he deals with the darkness and establishes his kingdom. There are many scripture references for the kingdom of Messiah, but one that is particularly relevant to this passage has to do with restoring the message. Notice Zechariah 3, 8 and 9. Therefore wait For me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him Shoulder to shoulder. Wow. Shoulder to shoulder. Then in Jeremiah 31, 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. See, this process has started with the Incarnation. And it will continue until he put his last enemy, death, under his foot. Verses 7 and 8 are a preamble to the next few verses, verses 9 through 11. So translate verses 9 through 11 and come back for the next lesson. Mm -hmm.